You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to John chapter 1, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. It says there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him, He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and has summarized this in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There it reads, how are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one, true, eternal God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, graduation is coming, and that usually means that some students will win awards. Most of these awards have something to do with academic achievement. Others have something to do with special contributions made in certain areas, mathematics or science or maybe industrial skills. Whether it be at the high school or college level, you can be sure that some students will be singled out for special honor. That's a given. 
However, this afternoon we've come to Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I seriously doubt whether it has ever won any honors. Lord's Day 1 takes most of them, followed by perhaps Lord's Day 7, 21, 23, 45. But as for Lord's Day 8, it, together with those Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper, such as 28, 29, 30s, often placed in the category of the boring, the too theological, the not so relevant. Lord's Day 8 faces a rough ride in its climb to popularity. At least that's the common viewpoint. But is it the right viewpoint? For sometimes, let's face it, the awards get handed out to the wrong students. Sometimes some really talented and hardworking students get overlooked. Perhaps there was one exam on which they didn't do so well and it dropped their grade point average. Or perhaps there's a personality issue somewhere. Whatever the case may be, awarding winners is not a perfect science. And I dare to say the same, beloved, applies to Lord's Days. Some who should receive more respect fail to garner it. Some who make a real contribution are overlooked. Some get what you might call in life a raw deal. Now, do not get me wrong, I am not about to wage a special campaign in support of Lord's Day 8. It's just that I have a soft spot for the underdog. And that soft spot goes beyond sports, even, I dare say, the Lord's Days, believe it or not. And so this afternoon, I would like to do a little rehabilitation, a little rehab work with you. I'd like you to take another look at Lord's Day 8 with me and and for really, while the exact words and formulations here may at times be lacking, there, there can be no doubt or there should be no doubt whatsoever that the subject that we're called upon to deal with this afternoon is wonderful and glorious beyond measure. And why do I say that? Well, because it deals with God, with our triune God. And is there anywhere a more award-winning more worthy, more fitting subject than this. So, beloved, I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme. Our God is a triune God. Hallelujah. And we shall see that this belief is not without its harsh critics, not without its biblical support, and not without its great comfort either. Well, beloved, you do not have to look very far if you're looking for critics of Lord's Day 8 and what it confesses. There are a host of higher critical scholars who will openly tell you that this doctrine about God being triune is really an ancient invention of the church. And usually, as the story goes, the apostles are the real culprits. After the death of the Lord Jesus, the story goes, they didn't know what to do, so they invented stuff 
They invented the resurrection. They invented the ascension. They invented the coming down of the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, they cooked up a whole complicated thing called Christian doctrine and fed it to the church. As and among the teachings that they invented was also the teaching of God being triune. It is said that they were desperate to set the Christian church apart and to distinguish it from Judaism. And seeing that Judaism is so adamantly monotheistic, stressing one God, they decided to go in a polytheistic direction, stressing many gods. In short, they say the doctrine of the triune God is an apostolic invention and creation. Well, beloved, if that is the higher critical line, in some ways, it's also the line of the sects. Read the literature of the Watchtower Society or the Jehovah Witnesses, as they're commonly called. And, and what do you come across again? It's this story that it was the church, whether the apostolic church or the early Christian church or the Reformation church, that made up this whole idea about God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in some ways, the Jehovah Witnesses are joined in these accusations by the followers of other cults and sects, be it Christadelphians or the old Herbert Armstrong followers or the Church of the Latter-day Saints called Mormons. All of them sing the same basic song. And it is that there is one God and no three persons in the Godhead. The Father is God, or the Father may be God. But Jesus certainly is not God. And neither is the Holy Spirit. Well, the Mormons even go so far as to say that while there is one God, all believers can be gods as well. They refuse to ascribe divinity to Christ and the Spirit, but they will ascribe divinity to all good Mormons. And so it is, beloved, that the attack on this doctrine comes from the higher critical camp and the cult camp. And seeing that all is fair in love and war, often the attacks can get rather nasty. For not only is the Christian church accused of invention and distortion, but it is also said at times to be just plain dumb. In what way? Why, the Christian church is said to be hopelessly dumb when it comes to mathematics. For everyone knows that one plus one plus one equals three. But here we have the church insisting that one plus one plus one equals one. You can almost read the headline. The church of Jesus Christ fails basic mass. And the critics have a field day. But beloved, enough said about the critics. There is a more basic issue here that we need surely to address. 
And it has a, a bearing on this matter. And what issue? Well, it is the issue of, of who do we listen to as we go through this life? The world in which we live is filled with many voices and all of these voices are demanding an audience. They all want to be heard and to be listened to. And people are listening. You know, not so long ago I was in China. And it struck me once again that the dominant voice in China is the voice of materialism. For when you go to that country, what do you see? You you see a society that is on the move. A society building, building and more building. It's a society which listens to a voice which insists that acquiring wealth and money and power is everything. There's no higher aim in life than to have an Audi A6 parked in front of the door and a fancy apartment near Tiananmen Square. But then, beloved, I went to Europe. And I heard another voice above the rest, and it is, I might say, the voice of humanism. It's the voice which says that man always knows best. That man is so sophisticated he understands it all. That man is in charge. It led me to think of the opening wording of the shorter Westminster Catechism. And I think these days in Europe they would come up with a new version and it would read something like this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Now, beloved, those are only two of the voices that people listen to today. And of course, it all begs the question, what voice are we here listening to? Is it the voice of higher critical scholarship, so to speak? Is it the voice of the cult? Is it the voice of materialism, humanism, or one of the other many isms that we have in our world? Well, if we are really what we claim to be, which is followers of Jesus Christ, then none of these voices will do. None of them speak for us or to us. None of them will direct and govern our lives. Now for them there is another voice that we will heed. And it is the voice of God as we find it revealed to us in the word of God. It and it alone governs our lives, shapes our thoughts, determines our actions, defines our theology. And now I ask you, what does that word, what does that voice say about God? It says that he must be and he is the triune God. 
You know, already at the very beginning of that word, we hear God say to himself and to us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then an attentive listener cannot help but ask, why the us and why the are in the conversation of God? Who's God referring to? And a little later on, the listener is confronted with the angel of the Lord, and more questions arise. Who is this angel? Why is he defined in terms of divinity and deity? And cautiously he or she asks, is there someone else who's also divine? Apart from God the Creator, or is it heresy? And the listener moves on and comes to the majestic words of the prophet Isaiah about God being holy, holy, holy. And more questions surface. Why is the word holy used three times? Why is God referred to as being triply holy? And so it is that the questions keep on popping up. And as our keen listener goes to the Old Testament, he or she knows that there is something going on there within the Godhead. What it precisely is, is hard to say. But something is definitely going on. Yes, and then our listener steps over into the New Testament and what happens? All of a sudden, new, clear, bolder sounds can be heard. Sounds emitted, for example, by John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And sounds emitted, beloved, by Mark chapter 1, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And sounds emitted by Luke 3, where Jesus stands in the water. And the voice of the Father is heard. And the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And sounds emitted by Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And beloved, these are only a few of the New Testament sounds. There are many, many more. And together they cause the church to think, to reflect, to debate to discuss, to formulate. And all of that took time. And sometimes it took a lot more than just time. It also took a great deal of disagreement and controversy. But you know, over time, the Spirit of God led the church of God to see and to speak with one voice. At Nicaea, at Constantinople, at Ephesus, the church spoke. 
And what did the church say? It said, now this is the Catholic faith. That we worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity in unity. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. Yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And over and over again you find it in the Athanasian Creed being confessed. And later on you can hear it again and again. Listen to the Belgian Confession according to this truth and this word of God. We believe in one only God who is one single essence in which there are three persons really, truly and eternally distinct in their incommunicable properties. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And listen, why do you speak of three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Beloved, the church of all times and places has spoken and we must listen. More than that, we must believe and confess that our God really is triune. It's a matter, I dare say, of life and death, salvation and condemnation. As the Assassination Creed dares to confess in its concluding words, this is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully, and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. But then, of course, some of you may be inclined to say at this particular point, fine, but I can believe and accept all this, but what does it matter? What difference does all of this, this make? And and how does all of this impact on, on my life tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday? Or does it? It does, beloved. It really does. Look at question and answer 24 again for a moment. Look closely at that question and answer. What do you see? First of all, you, you get a rather bald Question, you might say. How are these articles divided? And then, of course, that refers to the articles 1 to 12 of the Apostles' Creed mentioned in the previous question and answer. But then there's also an answer. An answer which reads into three parts. The first is about God, the Father and our creation. The second is about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Now, it's easy to read that question and answer, even to dismiss it as arid, dry theology. But look again. You and I are in that answer. 
And indeed, we are in that answer in three very special and spectacular ways. First of all, answer 24 tells us that we are in it in terms of our identity. Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? Do you know what is the purpose of your life? Do you realize that many people do not have a clue? If you were to go to Willowbrook Mall tomorrow and have a survey or hold a survey... What you would soon discover is that many people have no insight at all into their origin, their nature, or their purpose in this life. You'll find them groping around for answers, even grasping at silly ideas, giving lame responses. I'm here because of my parents. Well... Oh, I'm an advanced primate. You can read all about me in National Geographic. Or I'm here for fun. What's the problem with these people? The problem is, beloved, that they have divorced their life from God. From God the Father. For realize that that if God the Father is not in the center of your life, you have no fixed point of reference and you have no sense of true meaning. Only when we as creatures see ourselves in relation to the great Creator and the great Father do we know who we really are. And why we're really here. Without him, we're lost. With him, we're found. The expression, God the Father and our creation, reminds us of who we are. And who we really belong to. But you know, if answer 24 says something about our identity, it also says something else, something about our need. And I know that expression, our need, is controversial. Many people will say, what need? One of the great modern delusions is that man is and thinks that he is sufficient unto himself and can take care of himself. Thank you very much. Our technological advances, our modern means of transportation, our many institutions of higher learning, our media inventions all make us think that we've arrived. We have no need that we cannot address. We have no problems that we cannot solve. 
So we insist. Until an earthquake, or a typhoon, or a tornado, or a tsunami, come along and instantly put everything into perspective again. Or we insist until we dig a little deeper into the drug culture of today or the gang culture or the sex culture or the corruption culture. And when we do that, then all of a sudden we are confronted with great need. Discouraging need. Unsolvable need. And together, beloved, it all underlines one great need. The need for answers and solutions. Or if you will, the need for redemption. Mankind needs someone to help it, to rescue it, to save it. And that, beloved, is where Jesus Christ comes in. The catechism refers to God, the Son, and our redemption. And that means that only He is able to meet our every need. That only He can truly set us free and and revive us again and make us whole. Redemption is the glorious work of the second person of the triune God. And so, beloved, the triune God addresses our identity and addresses our need. And one more thing, the triune God also perfects us. He makes us whole, holy, perfect, complete, right. And of course, here again, many people are in denial They claim to have a perfect life, a perfect job, a perfect marriage, a perfect personality. But who are they kidding? If all is perfect, why is counseling such a flourishing enterprise and such a growth industry today? I've sometimes said to young men, Join the ministry. I guarantee you'll never be out of work. Because together with imperfect ministers, there are imperfect people. And imperfect people always supply work for imperfect pastors. And you might think that a rather dismal outlook. But not really. Or in addition to imperfect people and imperfect pastors, there is the perfecting Spirit of God. And He's at work in the lives of the saints of God. He's hard at work reshaping, remolding, reconfiguring, remaking the saints. The special and the necessary work of the Holy Spirit is the work of sanctification. And that's a long word. But it's not so hard to grasp. 
It means the Spirit is the one who makes the children of God less and less sinful and more and more holy. And this Spirit will not stop working until that day and that moment when the goal of perfection has been reached. Only when we have been remade completely into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can he rest. And will he rest? And in the meantime, he works. And this means that today we can be thankful. The world teaches self-help. The word teaches spirit help. And there is no doubt, no doubt at all, as to which is the most effective and powerful form of help. And so it is, beloved, that we may thank God the Father every day and every morning for our creation. And we may thank God the Son for our redemption and we may thank God the Holy Spirit for our sanctification. Truly in our God, in our triune God, we can find our greatest treasure and our deepest joy. And so, beloved, do not dismiss Lord's Day 8 too quickly. Its awards are few, but its riches are huge and beyond measure. Mind them, dig them up, enjoy them, build your life on them. For our God is a triune God. Hallelujah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.